0: Welcome to Shed, a podcast brought to you by the Vineyard Gazette. I'm your host, Eric Adams. During the fall of 2020, I interviewed members of our Martha's Vineyard community about the impact and implications of race in their lives. As a practicing therapist, I was interested in exploring the unique experiences that shape the lives of each guest and influence the way they see themselves and the world. We chose the name Shed to encourage listeners to do away with old beliefs that no longer serve us and to shed some light on systemic racism and its effects on us as individuals as well as the communities in which we live. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoy the show. Everybody I know has been to a party at the Nelson House but me. I'm not going to take it personally, but the next time there's a party, I may crash. You know, this still time. Hello and welcome to Shed. I'm your host, Eric Adams. We are very fortunate today to be joined by a legendary documentarian, Stanley Nelson. Stanley has been the recipient of the 2013 National Humanities Medal from President Obama, multiple primetime Emmy Awards, co-founder and executive director of Firelight Media, and he was the recipient of a MacArthur Fellowship, commonly known as a Genius Grant. Man, that is a mouthful and a long list. Welcome to Shed Stanley. Uh, thank you so much. It's great yeah, we to be here. Appreciate you being here. When I, I first came to the Vineyard in 1976, and when I got here, man, I, I couldn't exactly put my finger on it, but I had not been any place like this in my life. And from the moment I left, I wanted to come back. Can you talk at all about what the Vineyard community has meant to you and your family? Yeah, I mean
1: the, the vineyard has
0: been a rock. I've been coming here since I was six years old, and and it's and it's
1: been a rock, you know, um, for me, and 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 for my family. You know, it, it's a place where we have a, a real community. You know, um, where you know black folks and some white folks, you know, wave hello and mm-hmm. and, and and have your back and expect you to succeed. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. um, and it's a place of of love. It's a place where, you know, I grew up in New York apartment buildings where, where you don't want to know your neighbor. You know? <laughs> the less you know about your neighbor, the better mm-hmm. off you are. You know, in, in, in the vineyard, you know your neighbor and, and you know that your neighbor, you know, is is there to support you. And also, you see other successful black folks. It sounds weird, but, you know, I'll, I'll look out my window and I'll see black folks, you know, at 630 in the morning walking down the beach. Yeah. You know, just walking down the beach. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, yeah. You know, I'm like, yeah, you mm-hmm. know, that's that's what it's about, We to have that freedom to walk down the beach,
0: mm-hmm. you know, at 630 in the morning. There have been a lot of beaches we have not been able to walk down in this country.
1: Yeah, and we just don't have that, you know, that freedom. I mean, what we think about black folks, you know, and the way black folks are portrayed in this country, you know, they're not walking down a beach, right. you know, by themselves throwing stones in the water, mm-hmm. watching the sunrise. Mm-hmm. And that's. You know, something that the vineyard allows us to imagine, you know, and and imagine from there. And that's important.
0: When do you remember first becoming aware of race and having some sort of value applied to different races? I grew up in New York City and I I was going to private school. And and I think I, I just remember once
1: in the first grade, for whatever reason, you know, I organized this group. We're in the playground. I organized this group of the black might have been one other black kid or two, and and the Asian kid, and we were like, you know, we're not white, <laughs> blah, blah blah blah, and just you know ran around like hitting mm-hmm. the white kids and running, you know. Mm-hmm. And I just remember, I just remember that. I don't remember, wow, I don't remember what motivated it. It might have been you know a word or something or a conversation I had overheard with my, mm-hmm. I don't, I don't know what did it, but that's that's the first time I remember it, thinking about race. It's funny, I was being interviewed by a Japanese newspaper or magazine or something, and they were like, well, have you have you ever witnessed racism in, in your life? I said, so, you know, it's not like that. It's not like racism is somebody riding by and calling you, and, mm-hmm. you know, or it's not like, you know, somebody chasing you down an alley with a baseball mm-hmm. bat. It's like pervasive in the society. It's everything that you do. It's not knowing, you know, if if you get a seat in a restaurant by the kitchen because you're black, mm-hmm. not knowing if this cab, the cab, did the cab driver not see me or is mm-hmm. it because I'm black? You know, most of the time it's those little things, you know. It's, you know, and there, there, there are other times where it's overt, but you don't know. You know, you don't know. Nobody tells you, well, you know, we decided not to give you the job because you're black. Right. <laughs> you know, right. you just don't get the job. Mm-hmm. You don't know why. And and that's one of the things that's so crushing about racism i think and that drives black people crazy Mm -hmm. you know i mean literally crazy because you see people out on the street talking to themselves Mm -hmm. because they don't know you know you don't know if it's you there's a a book it's like a kind of a just this mystery story that came out i think in the 50s or 60s that's really weird and like the hero of the of the book you don't know he's black and like he goes through all this weird stuff Mm -hmm. you know like, like he's in a bar and they like he goes to the bathroom and they come in and beat him up or, you know, like just weird mm-hmm. stuff. And at the end, it, the last line is, you know, he was just a Negro standing there in the rain. And you realize, mm. oh, and then you go flip back through the book and you realize all this stuff happened because he's black. You know, he's in the bar with this white woman and they go, you know, and just all this weird stuff. Mm. And, you know, that's kind of in some ways part of, I think, you know, being black. It's not, again, if, if it was just somebody rode by and, said the N-word once or twice in my, in my life. I can you know. deal I, I can deal with that. I could deal with that. But, you know, it, it's all those little cuts that I think make the whole experience in America weird. Mm-hmm.
0: Can you tell me a little about your film series, America Revisited? and why you focused your lens so much on the Black Panther movement.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think the idea of America Revisited is that, you know, that there's one standard narrative of American history, and we wanted to look at it in a very different way. The three films, in some ways, they, they're just a catch-all. I mean, we could have had three different films, you know, or a hundred different films, and called it America Revisited. Um, there's thousands of different ways you can relook at our history. But we thought it was a start.
0: The idea was... You know, let's look at America from a different point of view. Stanley, what do you think is the most misunderstood thing about the Black Panther movement? I think
1: the whole thing is is, is misunderstood. I think one of the, the things that's really misunderstood is how the Panthers were looked at at that time. I was a young guy, you know, living in New York City, and, and like so many people, we revered the Black Panthers, mm-hmm. you know, and like so many people, in some ways, You know, we felt that Martin Luther King had gone as far as he could go. Mm -hmm. But the way it's come down in history is Martin Luther King is a saint and the civil rights movement wouldn't have been nothing without Martin Luther King and the Black Panthers, you know, and in some ways Malcolm X, you know, Mm -hmm. are are evil and and something to be feared. Uh, And we wanted to to relook at the Panthers you know also that the Panthers were were really young. I mean, as we say in the film, their average age was probably eighteen or so. These wow, were these were these were that. kids. Mm-hmm. You know, I think it's looked at a little bit differently because you know Huey Newton and Eldridge Cleaver and Bobby Seale, kind of the leaders, were a little older. But Huey Newton and Bobby Seale both started the Panthers when they were in college, and you know it was mainly made up of very young people. At that time, they were the real vanguard. You mm-hmm. know, I mean there are, there are other real important movements we did a a film a long time ago about Marcus Garvey and his movement, which was a very different kind of movement and very influential and very misunderstood movement. But, you know, the Panthers were something different. I was 15 in 1966, you know, and it was the first time I had ever seen
0: a black man stand up and put his finger in a white man's face. Could you speak a little bit about what it meant to you personally to witness for the first time black men pointing their fingers in the face of... The white oppressors. It
1: was a huge deal. You know, sometimes in life, you know, you're missing something and you don't even know you're missing it. You know, you don't even know that there's an absence, but it was like, wow, I've never seen this before. And also at that point in 1966, the Common, what's called the civil rights movement, you know, Martin Luther King, and others, you know, had been going on for a while, mm-hmm. and we were like, okay, it's going. To, it looks like non nonviolence has gone as far as it can go. Now, I have to say that some of that is that I was, you know, 15, mm-hmm. you know, I was a kid. And I was mm-hmm. like, yeah, well, I got to fight back, you know. <laughs> Part of it was that not understanding totally, you know, what nonviolence was. I think nonviolence, I mean, they did an incredible job. Sure. The Panthers, were, in many ways, were a symbolic movement. I don't think that they thought of themselves, or many of them didn't. But, you know, you can't have a re- revolution where you're like one-tenth of the population. Right. But they did turn things around and make people think, about this country in a in a very different way for for so many people, mm-hmm. it was like this galvanizing thing. I, me and my friend, we were in New York. We went to the Panther headquarters in Harlem. You know, like after school, we walked over there. We were gonna join up, and we stood outside, and we we're like, uh, "Nope."
0: <laughs> <laughs> what stopped you?
1: It became known that the government was coming down on you, mm-hmm. and that that basically you were gonna put your life on the line if you join the Black Panthers, and and. A lot of people did, mm-hmm. but you know, as a fifteen, sixteen-year-old, you know, I was like, I don't, I, you know, we I just remember standing there across the street. And we we're like, oh, I don't think we we're ready for this yet. We revered Martin Luther King and John Lewis and them, but you know, they were nonviolent, got their heads beat, you know. Mm-hmm. And the Panther said, no, we're not, we're not going to do that. What they did was part of a movement, you know, and a movement. To me, takes all different sides. We saw in in the George Floyd incidents when people started marching, Mm -hmm. it meant something. And you know, I'm not advocating violence, but when they started burning stuff, then it was on all night long. Yes, it was. It was was on all night long Mm
0: -hmm. on CNN, MSNBC. Mm -hmm. Do you think the Black Lives Matter movement is in any way capable of filling the shoes of the Black Panther Party? I think it's already done that in many ways. You know, Mm -hmm. I I think that it's
1: a very different movement. I think that my guess would be they took some things from the Black Panthers and they rejected some things from the Black Panthers. One of the things that that happened with the Black Panthers is that it was very much based on their leaders. And when their leaders faltered, the movement kind of collapsed. Mm -hmm. You know, when Eldridge Cleaver and Huey Newton get into this squabble, the whole movement collapses. And that's really important. And I think... Maybe partially because of that, you know, the Black Lives Matter movement has actively tried not to have these identifiable leaders. Mm-hmm. So if you a 100 people who were the leaders of the Black Lives Matter movement, they could not tell you. You think that's a good thing? I don't want to be the judge of that, you okay. know, because I think that it's their time. It's their turn. I don't know. I think probably I think that there's great things about it, but I also think that there's problems with it. Mm -hmm. You know, who do you talk to? Right. You know, when something happens, like, who do we speak to? Mm -hmm. Who leads this movement? You know, um, my kids, I have 21-year-old twins and a 30-year-old daughter, and my 21-year-old twins are in New York, and they were really part of getting out there on the street and marching and getting, you know, being part of it. But, you know, in June, July, you know, when they're marching very strongly, there might be 10 different marches. In New York, you know, Mm -hmm. there's not one central Mm -hmm. thing. And and I'm not sure if that's a good thing or a bad thing, but there would be a march at City Hall, there'd be a march in Brooklyn, there would be a march on Wall Street. There's no kind of central coordination. And, you know, it's working. So I'm not going to judge it. I mean, you know, this this has been amazing, Mm -hmm. you know, um, riding up here to do this interview. I mean, Black Lives Matter, you know, signs are everywhere. Mm -hmm. It's permeated everything. And so it's working. How do you feel when you see all these signs of support? I feel great. You yeah, know I don't feel that people are being hypocritical. I think that you know the main thing that has to happen is we've got to keep it going. I've done a bunch of films on the civil rights movement, and I did a, f- a film called Freedom Riders. And one of the things that one of the Freedom Riders said is that – we knew that we had to hold the front paper for five days in a row. Mm-hmm. The front page of the paper. If we were on the front page of the paper five days in a row, then we had a movement. Mm-hmm. You know, we consciously tried to do that. Maybe that's one of the things you miss from having leaders, but also one of the things that's really important is that the civil rights movement, those were very organized. A lot of times we don't realize that. We think everybody just ran out in the street, you know, to follow Martin Luther King. One of the things that they talk about in Freedom Riders is how, you know, the women on the Freedom Rides would wear dresses and heels and they might wear little white gloves and the men would wear jackets and ties. And they did that on purpose, you know, to show the contrast between them and the Southern racists, you
0: know, who are in overalls and dirty, ripped up T-shirts. I remember learning for the first time that when Rosa Parks refused to get out of her seat, that that was an organized planned event. And it seems to maybe be intentional to minimize the strategic importance that black people had in developing strategies to combat racism and inequality. People are now starting to
1: realize, because there's so much publicity, and Rosa Parks has become such an icon, but Rosa Parks was chosen to do that because of who she was and because of her look. I mean, you know, she looked like a little school teacher, you know. And a squeaky <laughs>
0: clean past, from yeah, what I understand. Right, right. right. It,
1: it's like, you know, Jackie Robinson in, in baseball in some ways. Jackie Robinson may not have been the greatest black player in the country, although he was great. He, mm-hmm. he proved to be great. But he also had gone to college. Out in California, he had been among white people, you know, and they knew that he could do this without retaliating mm-hmm. and you know that he was the guy to do
0: it. He was chosen. I remember someone said, might've been Chris Rock, that America wasn't ready for a black baseball player at the time, but they were ready for Jackie Robinson, mm-hmm. to your point. So you mentioned that you, and I heard the pride in your voice when you talked about your kids being out in the street and protesting, mm-hmm. and my kids did the same. And what I saw, Stanley, was that Collectively, the Black youth particularly, and lots of other folks too, went from a place of contemplation to awareness just by that the incident with george floyd and I wonder if you could talk about where you were and how you felt when you saw the murder of George Floyd. Did you see the video yeah, I, I
1: honestly can say that I never watched the whole thing mm-hmm. i mean i don't need to i was I was surprised in a way that it did what it did Me you too. Know, in this country. Because we've
0: like, seen lots of those videos. Yeah, I was
1: like, I, I, but I, I, whatever, this was the straw that broke the camel's back. Mm-hmm. One, it was so, you know, it was like eight minutes and 46 seconds, whatever mm-hmm. it was, you know, and it was long and it was there and nobody did anything and mm-hmm. nobody's stopped it and people all around, you know, it just, well, for whatever reason, you know, it, it moved so many people. And and I mean, I think it's important, as you said, you know, it, it wasn't just black folks. Mm-hmm. And that's one of the things that's so amazing about this moment that we're in. One of the, the tests is to just keep this moment alive. Yeah. What I always said before this is that you cannot talk about racism in this country. You could not say anything about racism to a white person. Right. Anything. You could not say the word racism. I mean, you're standing out there on the street trying to get a cab, and a cab doesn't stop for you. Another cab doesn't stop. You say, see, to a white person, that's racism. And they would be like, well, maybe they didn't see you. Mm-hmm. That's, that's what we
0: call denial <laughs> in the trade. Yeah. maybe mm-hmm. they.
1: You know, it was almost like you accused your friend, your white friend of being a racist. I'm like, I'm not saying anything to you. I mean, obviously they saw us, you know? So I think it opened this window, you know, where you get, for a moment, we, we can talk about racism in a way that we couldn't. And I think white folks are like saying, oh my God, you yes. know? oh my God, you know? in the same way even to a greater degree that my kids are saying oh my god mm-hmm. you know
0: this is this is how it is one of the things that i'll never forget i mean still with me to this day is when i was a kid and i would see the pictures of lynchings and i'd see these mangled black bodies hanging in trees which was horrifying as a child what was equally horrifying was to see the white faces surrounding that that It looked like a 4th of July party. I mean, they were happy. They were joyous. They were celebrating. And as a kid, what it told me was that I could not be sure what one of my white community members, one of my white friends, white people, which side they were on. So, this has allowed white folks to step into a role of allyship, real allyship mm. to the movement. First,
1: I want to say you know, that we are, we're working on a short film about the pictures of lynchings mm. because they, they were so popular. They made postcards of them and they were so popular that in like 1909 or something like that, the postmaster general made it illegal to put them in the mail. Is that right? And so people had to put them in an envelope now. So imagine how many of these photos were circulating before wow. the postmaster general makes that illegal. And what's the message of that? Yeah, I mean, they were, they the, this was something that white people said to each other, like, hey, hey, hey you having know, having a
0: great time. Yeah, right, yeah. <laughs> you know? Yeah,
1: there's, there's a great postcard of the Tulsa riots after the Tulsa riots, and it's like from above, and you see all the town burning, and the little caption is chasing the out of Tulsa, wow. you know, and was a, this was like a postcard. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a thing where W.E.B. Du Bois, you know, sees like uh the kneecaps of a guy that was lynched in Atlanta in a butcher store, mm. hanging in the butcher store in, in the butcher store window. Someone said to me, you know, that during the Civil War, right, where the white men went away in the South to fight, right, and left their families and blah, blah, blah with the black slaves, there was not one... Incident or accusation of rape. Hmm. Okay, so, you know, all of a sudden after the wars, black people are freed, you know, there's all these accusations
0: or excuses of rape. How would you say America views black men in our society today?
1: It's hard for me at this point, you know, to say how America sees anything Hmm. because I am just continually surprised by America. I don't know exactly what's going on in this country at this point. Part of it Part of what happened with George Floyd and part of the protest and part of the moment that we're living in is so many people were startled by this is America. And I think most black people, in, you, know, you have a hard time for black people to admit it, but also in some ways were startled. I'm not sure. I, I know you know what America is feeling about black men, but I know that, that America finds a way to justify unequal treatment of black people as a whole and that goes across the board you know that that's not only the police violence like I I like to say look if the police were black people's only problem you know we'll take that (laughs) you know we'd we'd be great we'd be sitting pretty you know if that was our only problem you know I mean and that's a bad problem but still that's a solvable problem but you know it's across the board and then you know America has found a way to to kind of, for, for a long time, kind of ignore what's pretty obvious. Either there's systemic racism or there's, there's a real problem, or then what do you say? Black people are just more violent. Black people are dumber, mm-hmm. you know? Well, I mean, you know, I mean, like, so it's one or the other.
0: Mm-hmm. They say that developmentally for children, one of the worst things you can do is to deny the things that they know that are real. And I've wondered, because as a people... There's been such denial to what we know to be real, what that's done to the black psyche. Any thoughts about that? So many times, you know, we could not talk about racism.
1: It was almost like you know to mention the word racism to a white person it was like you are accusing them of being racist right. you know i was like no i'm not accusing you i'm just talking about and you become you know, angry like right, why are you angry right 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 and so it's 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 a weird thing you mm-hmm. know it's that thing that black people know you know of of white people putting your money down on the counter instead of putting it in your hand mm-hmm. you know it was so funny we were talking about somebody was talking about how they had a f- argument with a doorman you know uh, you know and i was realizing i hate doormen <laughs> <laughs> i hate my i fight with them all the time because Why? i because like i'm like this because they always have some crap to say you mm-hmm. know like so who are you gonna visit you know uh you know what it's are all you doing here? yeah what are you doing here it's, it's all you know it's like their job and they can be black you mm-hmm. know a lot of times their job is to protect the white folks from from you so mm-hmm. you know it's that thing where you where you steal up you know I did this I did this little film for Starbucks you know when when <clears throat> when those two guys got arrested and and they closed their their stores down so I did this little 10 minute film which is available if you go to YouTube you put in Starbucks and Stanley Nelson, is a little 10-minute video. But the whole video is about, you know, black people not feeling welcome in so many spaces. And it was like, it's, I just think everybody should watch it because one of the things that, that it talks about is something that we don't even talk to each other about. Mm-hmm. Black people, or I, feel uncomfortable a lot of times in so many spaces. You know, you know the feeling. You know, you're, you're pushing through the door of Saks Fifth Avenue and you're like... Uh, oh, <sighs> mm-hmm. okay, let me, you know. Let's what am hope, I in for? Yeah, here? what am I in for? You know, like, you know, or, you know, you go to a building, you know, in downtown New York, you go to the, the desk, and what am I in for? How are they going to treat me? But we don't talk about that among ourselves. You're right. I can't tell my son, oh, yeah, every time I enter a store, I got to brace myself because I don't know. You know, I'm like, no, nah, son, you know, I feel good everywhere I go. I'm a black man, you know. Should we be talking to our kids about that? <laughs> yes, but, but let them know that that's a common feeling and, mm-hmm. and you have to you know, fight through it. Mm-hmm. You know? But also, there, there is that feeling that
0: as you go into these places where you should be welcomed, you're not. You said a couple of times that you know some of these problems we talked about were, were minor problems. What are the big ones? Racism is a huge problem. You know, um, the fact that
1: it's gone on for so long and it's so pervasive in in our society. Mm-hmm. The fact that it's just an un, uneven playing field across the board. Mm-hmm. That people are looked at by the color of their skin and thought to be less than because of the color of their skin. Mm-hmm. You know that. You might get in a situation where you might feel good, a white person might feel good and hire one black person, but they're not going to hire a second. Mm -hmm. My kids, you know, went to private school pretty much all their lives and there would be like two or three black people in their class. Mm -hmm. These are very liberal schools, but Mm -hmm. there's never six or seven, you know. Three (laughs) is enough to qualify as diversity sometimes. (laughs) Right, Right, somewhere, you know. Awareness is like super important Mm -hmm. for white folks you know like it's important for for them to be aware and I think it's important for us as black folks to try to keep our sanity Mm -hmm. you know and do what we do with love and love for ourselves so that we don't become bitter Mm -hmm. and mean Mm -hmm. and crazy Mm -hmm. you know like what's what's the point you know so I think that those are the important things um I think we're, we're making a step here now. This is a small step. You know, white people are starting to be a little bit aware. And it's, you know, how do you stay aware? You know, how do you understand that that this is like a long-term process? You know, the Black Panthers started because of police brutality in 1966, mm-hmm. you know, and here we are, what, 45 mm-hmm. years later or whatever it is, maybe more, I don't know, I can't even count that high, mm-hmm. 55 years later, you know, and, and we're still here. So, this is not going to disappear, but I think, you know, that we're aware is the first step.
0: What you talk about, Stanley, is that through hundreds of years, there's been trauma, that we've been traumatized, and we're now becoming more familiar with the concept of generational trauma. Every black person in this country today can draw a line to their ancestors who have been beaten, tortured, hung, raped, sold, without any sort of treatment. We've had no treatment for this generational trauma. That context provides some understanding, I think, to some of the anger and some of the dysfunction that happens within our culture. I've been told that the greatest way to transmit wisdom is through storytelling. And we appreciate your story, Stanley. We are really grateful to have you with us today. Thanks for being with us. I think it was great. Shed has been brought to you by the Vineyard Gazette. Thank you again for listening. And if you like what you heard, please share our podcast with your friends and family. Shed is produced by Amy Schumer, Renee Richardson, Jack Eby, Tony Phillips, Chris Fisher and the Vineyard Gazette.